Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Yep, we're still in Luke chapter 10. And as I had mentioned in the uh, announcements, this this text, verses 25 through 37, is commonly uh, the Good Samaritan. Uh, I imagine most, maybe normal preachers would take this opportunity to preach on the Good Samaritan and what a neighbor is. Uh, but this study is on the Lord's ministry. And as I have taught on the Good Samaritan at least three times that I could find in the last year, what I want to look at instead is where this lines up in the Lord's ministry, why He delivers it the way He does, and what the actual um, answer is to this lawyer's question. Because many know the Good Samaritan story. Some might not be as familiar to why it's being told. So let's dive into the text, Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And... Still not going to finish Luke 10. We're going to end in 37. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. But the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto them, or said unto him, Take care of him. Now whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. As a reminder of the context of the situation, the Lord is instructing this lawyer, and that's who he turns to next and says, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once more for the opportunity to preach and teach your word. We pray, Father, as we said this morning, that it be found profitable, that you would uh, apply to this instruction wisdom and understanding, two great treasures that we are to not forsake. I ask, Father, again, that distractions not engage our minds at this time, that we be free from the cares and the woes and the sufferings of this world for even a few more minutes, Lord, that we might see what your word has to say for us. Lord, we ask your blessings upon your people and upon your word, according to your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I had mentioned, in this particular parable, I've talked quite a few times. If you, if you weren't here for it and you're looking for it, if you go to our uh, uh, any of these feeds that we have all the stuff on and look up my last message on forgiveness, we talked a lot about this particular parable. It, w- it is worthy of note, though, that this is one of 16 parables that are exclusive to Luke's account. As, as you know from this study, I try to give you all the parallels uh, as we see them, since we're going through the harmony and chronologically, but there are no parallels. There are no, uh, there's no harmony to this one. It's only in Luke. 
this lawyer was possibly present for the teachings before then. So if you remember from a couple weeks ago, the 70 went out and returned. They were rejoicing over what had been done, uh, rejoicing that they had uh, seemingly great power. They were to heal and deliver these messages that the Lord had instructed them with. As you might recall from the close of that, Jesus says the following in verses 21 through 24. And I want to revisit this because if the lawyer was around for this, this is very likely why he stands up here. Because we see at the beginning of our text, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. The lawyer was likely seated and present for this previous conversation, this previous teaching. In verse 21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Now let's hold, because he's referencing something that took place before that. Go back to verse 18. Jesus says, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you. Rejoice not over that, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I believe this is probably what got that lawyer stirring a little bit in his seat. Their names are written in heaven. What's the question that he asked? Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says in verse 22, All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son, uh, who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned, unto, turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to know those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. In a sense, in verse 24, the Lord says unto these, You are precious in the eyes of God. And if you don't hear anything else today, I pray that you do hear that. If you are His... If he has planted you and grown you and tended to that garden as we talked about this morning, you need to know that you are precious in the eyes of God. That you are rare. The world cannot manufacture anything in comparison to you. Uh, those who came expecting a Proverbs 31 message, the message there is that she's priceless, isn't it? That her value is far above rubies. See, I know Proverbs 31. I just don't teach it on Mother's Day. It talks about... Her value and the things, if you go and read Proverbs 31 tonight, men, you ought to read it to your wife. You'll see that there are things that she does and things about her that are highly valued. Pay attention to those. So this lawyer here likely just witnessed all of this. Maybe even, although it says privately in verse 23, so he may not have heard what was in verse 23 and 24, but he definitely heard what was mentioned in verse 20, that their names are written in heaven. And this stirs him up to the point where he stands up and he tempts the Lord and saying, what shall I do to, etern to inherit eternal life? Jesus asked him what his value set is, what his qualifications would look like. And the lawyer says all these things, essentially saying all these things that I've done very well at. And Jesus says, okay, do that and thou shalt live. Now, there's more to it. We're going to come to that in just a moment. But the lawyer, if he was present for these teachings of, of even the last handful of events, it's most likely, at the very least, that he saw the 70 come back. He saw the 70 sent out as sheep among wolves and saw them come back. And as sheep among wolves, you might expect them to seem scarred, defeated, uh, you might think of, if, if I were to commission 
these four men here to go out into Mantachi and give the gospel, you might expect they're going to be defeated when they come home. That they might be worn out from people just not answering the door, or spitting in their faces, slamming the door shut, calling the cops because they were on their lawn, whatever it might be. But would you ever imagine the four of them coming back and saying, the Lord was with us. The Lord was with us this day. And these folks are not only going to come to church on Wednesday, they've come back with us today. God is good. Well, no, because we have such small faith, we don't expect that, do we? We expect them to be defeated. This lawyer had the same kind of religious faith. He expected the 70 to come back defeated if they came back at all. But they did come back victorious. They came back from a faithful deployment. And you might remember from that last lesson, they were deployed, they were destroyed, they were employed, and they enjoyed what they were sent out to do. From the opening of this portion of text, Dr. Luke reveals that the lawyer's presence, uh, he, he seems to announce his presence in a very surprising way. Behold! Behold! In the audience, behold, in the midst, a certain lawyer stood up. As though the others who had been gathered for the teaching were unaware of his title, unaware of his loyalty, unaware of his uh, chosen field or his expertise or his educational background. Notice also here that he reveals himself by standing and tempting Jesus. Sound teaching of the word of God tends to have this response in those who do not yet know him. A rising up and a conflict or a tempting. That can't be true what you say there. Luke 10, verses 17 through 20, the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as a lightning fall from heaven, as we read before. And then he reminded them to not rejoice over the fact that these spirits are subject unto them, but rather rejoice because their names are written down in heaven. That power was revealed of God and in the 70 was probably too much for him to continue to sit there silently without objecting to. Maybe it was the witnessing of the devil's fall that Jesus spoke of that stirred him up. Remember, they didn't all believe that this was the Son of God. Perhaps it was the eternal security that the Lord promises in that same portion of text that we just read from. You know, the reason I point some of these things out is because they're still stumbling blocks today. Still stumbling blocks today in a mixed crowd teaching on this subject, there would still be those who would stand up and tempt the teacher saying, once saved, always saved. There would still be those that would cry out, foul, foul. This one's unclean. This one shouldn't be here. This one should not be used. How many times do we read of an objection of one who should not be alive, one who should not be eating with, and one that should not be used after the Lord saw fit to go ahead and have that happen? Is that not the way of man? Maybe the Lord's confirmation of a particular revealing, not to all, but to those chosen of God, the fa- of God the Father, that we see there in verse 21 that riled him up. We refer to it as election, and it always riles people up. We're not so far removed from this lawyer. I imagine those last few were perhaps the prickliest of thorns as we consider his question. Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
the works-based achievement of eternal security that this lawyer or scribe would have been so dedicated to was directly in peril with the words of God that said, Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent. This lawyer would have thought of himself to be wise and prudent. What would God hide from me? What would I not already know? And then the behold that we see here, we, we mention that as an announcing of His presence. It was not a surprise to Jesus, but it was a surprise to those around Him. This lawyer is the first of two who will come with this question. Listen to Luke 18, verses 18 through 23. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And listen to what Jesus says unto him. Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me, that two-word invitation. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Both times the Lord seems to address the real concern, as he did with Nicodemus back in John 3. Something else very interesting about the lawyer uh, uh, that he's dealing with right now, which time permitted, we'll get to at the end of this lesson. But for our study today, I want to look at why Jesus may have answered the question the way he did. Again, if you're looking for a teaching on this parable, it's already done. It's already out there. Uh, You probably already heard it and don't even know it. Today we're going to deal with the lawyer asking it. And we have a handful of points. Jesus deals with the sincerity in the asking, the emphasis of the asking, the attitude of the asking is our final point. First, the sincerity in the asking. In asking this question, Dr. Luke points out that the lawyer was seeking to tempt or put Jesus on trial. That's laid out before we even know the question. There's the standing up and then a, a declaration by Dr. Luke, our writer, that he's tempting the Lord. In James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we read the following. From whence comes wars and fightings among you? This isn't an unanswerable question. It's laid out in Scripture. Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. It's not just a lack in sincerity, though that's the focus here, but it's a lack of understanding and really a lack of of sincere desiring, to be honest with you. If eternal life was something limited in volume and to be earned by works and achievements, what chance would we truly have? Have you ever asked that? If if you've not studied the Bible and only taken my word for it, that salvation cannot be worked for or earned, have you ever asked if it were limited in volume, if not all would be saved, what chance would we truly have of pleasing Him? Have we thought about trying to the best of all humans, to be one of the best of all humans of all time? Let's say only five people were going to be saved. And salvation is based on works. You don't have to be just one of the best five in this room. You don't have to just be one of the best five that you know of, because only God would know the scale. You have to be the best five of all time, for all time, that ever has been and ever will be. And what happens to records usually when they get broken? They get broken again. 
So if somehow someone finds out that in 2023, Isaac's the best Christian there ever was in all of history, he's now the mark for the rest of all time. They've got to be better than Isaac to be in the top five. You see what James lays out in James 4? We now have war. They either have to beat him or slander him. They have to convince themselves that he's not as good as he laid himself out to be. And therefore, they have a chance to be better than he is. Is there any wonder why some denominational institutions claim that all will be saved or that there must be a purgatory? Because with that level of understanding, the only way to have peace is that all are saved or that there's some other way of securing salvation after death. If it were to come to a battle of talents, then surely the best chance anyone would have would be endurance or intelligence. And we seem to be short of both in 2023. Beloved, these are the wrong beliefs. It's not intelligence or endurance. It's Jesus. It is the precious blood of the Lamb, poured out for the elect of God, that saves and secures for all eternity. And there is no other way. It's not the lawyer's answer. It's not the words he uses that will grant eternal life. Those things that he says that he should do to earn eternal life, the Lord does encourage those things. And again, we'll come back to that at the end. But that's not what gives eternal life or secures it. With this in mind, we can see why this lawyer asked what he asked. How do I ensure that I have inherited everlasting life? I've done all these works. I've done all these things. I should have it. You just told them, though, that only a few would be written down, that they should be rejoicing over it being written down, and I want to know that I'm written down. This is really what he's asking. If I were to give a, a sucker to Zebediah and Landon, I'm not going to use the name you think, Laney, because she's got a history of sucker loving, is going to say, well, what do I have to do to earn the sucker? What'd the oldest boy do when the... Uh, the youngest came back in the lesson we just taught a few weeks ago. Why does he get the fatted calf? I've been here the whole time. Where's my robe and ring and where's the party for me? That's in all of our members. Salvation is either all of God or it's not. We should rejoice in knowing that what he's trying, he has a, a, a wrong understanding, a wrong set of beliefs, a wrong and ungodly conviction, and he's trying to secure this everlasting life. He wants what they have. He doesn't want a broken heart over it. He doesn't want to change his understanding or his beliefs. But he doesn't want to be the one that the Father has hidden such things from. How do I get that? And Jesus doesn't just tell him. He says, well, what do you think? There's the answer. What's in the way of the lawyer is what he thinks. What was in the way for me up until the age of 15? All those works is what I believed would lock in eternal and everlasting life. That was in the way. He directly answers the question. His response to Jesus' initial answer was in an attempt to justify himself. That's what Dr. Luke says. Why would he feel that that was needed? 
this is a the only person to ever walk the face of the earth that does not need any type of justification whatsoever. And this lawyer is attempting to justify himself to him. What he's saying is no effect on Jesus. Jesus is not pliable. He's not mutable. He's not changeable. And Jesus does answer his question. The lawyer, though, intent on keeping his understanding and having what he desires, has to try to justify himself. Secondly, the emphasis of the asking. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, Paul writes, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to partake in afflictions, but this is the command. This God is he who hath saved us, Paul says. This God is he who hath called us within holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose, according to his own grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The death of death. I haven't heard it yet, but I have to imagine if Steve taught it from Scripture, it lines up pretty well. The Lord conquered death with a gift of grace. What did we read this morning at the end of Romans 12? Conquer evil with good. Conquer hurt with love. Setting forth a pattern and a tradition of good works that others will see and glorify God. Be ye reconciled to God the Father. His intentions were laid out in the text. Tempting Jesus and justifying himself. He quit. His question literally was, what shall I do? What shall I do? You almost imagine how he asked it. I did all those things. What shall I do? I am a lawyer. I'm not just a lawyer, but I I will be scribed forever in the word of God as a certain lawyer. Still uh, a nameless or a certain nameless lawyer. Still a nameless lawyer. What shall I do? I'm very smart. I'm very clever. And I answered your question very well. You even said, this do. So what shall I do? What's left? In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, Paul writing again, But after that the kindness and love of, of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. And here's how. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice how Paul was led here to reference justification and inheritance. The lawyer is implying justification. He's trying to justify himself. But we can't justify ourselves. What righteousness are we going to dig deep inside of our own selves to find to justify our own selves? It can't be done. It literally would make no sense for one who is... Uh, Fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, like we said earlier, that according to Romans 6.23, has the the wages of 
death because of that sin. And there's nothing good in us as see read in Romans three. No, not even one of us. That means I can't even dig deep into Clark to pull out enough good to justify me. Something else has to act upon me to justify this wicked sinner. That means all of my works are unrighteous. That means all of my words are unrighteous. Every candle I light, lit with a wicked hand. There's no righteousness in me at all. It's a good question that the lawyer asks. What shall I do? I wonder if Jesus didn't just do that. Let me tell you a story. Because that's his response. What shall I do? If you're here and lost, there's nothing you can do. You need to recognize yourself to be a sinner. You need to repent and understand that there's nothing you've done that will earn you an inheritance in the kingdom. You need to fall on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to ask folks to pray for you. There's no shame in confessing that you're lost. But you need to ask some folks to come around you. To encourage you, to lift you up. Folks with the access to the throne of God that will pray on your behalf. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins. Hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are, once again, his garden, his workmanship, his building. The emphasis of his asking was off, as it was all about what he could do to ensure his claim or inheritance, and to justify himself for the balance of all time. How can I have eternal life? What shall I do? The next question logically would have then been, how can I keep that salvation for all time? How can I keep from falling through a cloud, out of heaven, and perishing forever? I don't want that kind of salvation. Do you? Do you want the kind of salvation that on a bad day you lose? Listen, I'm not every other Baptist preacher. I don't typically lay out what's Arminian and what's Campbellite and blah, 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 blah. I know those things. I don't understand all the things. But here's what I do know. I know what the dollar bill looks like. Clark and Bree and I were talking about this during lunch. The FBI, when they give a presentation on counterfeit money, they teach what the dollar bill looks like. And they study that $1 bill, or $100 bill, whatever it is, the one example of a true one. They study it, and they know, and they know that they know what it looks like. And anything that shows up claiming to be the dollar bill that doesn't look like that is automatically discerned out. That's what we're doing. I'm not as concerned that you know what an Arminian is. Because you know what you can't do? You can't go out on the street and say, Listen, Arminian, you need the gospel. Oh, don't talk like a Campbellite. 
You need the gospel. What have some done to us? Y'all hyper-Calvinists, that's not a good way to start a conversation. But if you know what the dollar bill looks like, if you know that salvation is not on works, you can give the pure and unadulterated gospel to just about anyone. And it won't matter if they try to serve Allah, Santa Claus, or Disney World. You're giving them the gospel. So you'll forgive me if I don't dive into such things. I don't see the profitability in it. The right emphasis was that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. This is what Paul lays out for the Ephesians. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. What we just taught on this morning. That in these mortal bodies is expressed the power of God, the death of Christ, the everlasting life of Christ. That's a lot for us to contain. That's a lot for us to wear. Romans 14, verses 7 through 8. None of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. Consider also what Paul wrote concerning others who were preaching during his imprisonment there to the Philippi, the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. He says, Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every, uh, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by my, uh, whether it be by life or by death, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Notice again the importance of sincerity. Paul's confession here is not for his own puffing up, his own benefit, his own profit. It is all for Christ. Third and lastly is the attitude of the asking. His tempting tone earned him the answer focused on compassion and being a good neighbor. That's what the whole parable is about. When he, when he, apologize for jumping my back hurts a little bit. Um, the whole parable ends with who's who's the good neighbor. The the lawyer throwing off and trying to justify himself says has a question about being a neighbor, and the Lord gives him a fantastic story that I don't know that any has lived up to since. And compassionate, uh, a compassion is what makes the difference in those three examples as far as who is the good neighbor, who is being compassionate. Ascension to glory is not an arm wrestling match between candidates. Again, consider what James writes in James chapter 4. We're going to read the whole thing. So if you want to turn there, go ahead and do so. James chapter 4. And we quoted the first few verses of this already, so I'll start there. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust, that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Listen to the next part. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, 
Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Here's that condescension we talked about this morning. Listen to what James says. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. It's interesting he throws the word brethren in that verse, isn't it? Speak not evil one of another, comma, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Go to now ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall on the mor- be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For what ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. The Lord's emphasis here was that he was sent to deliver and lead, Savior and Messiah. And we are to have an attitude that is reflective, not directive. We are to have an attitude of one who is following, one who is reflecting Christ. Too often times we find brethren, as James refers to here, that put themselves in a position where they can direct. And they're not reflecting at all. They're not reflecting forgiveness or grace or love. None of these kinder things that we know are the required necessary soft tissue that binds. What happens when there's no more knee tissue in the bone, grinds on the bone? Wears out, does it not? We're joints that supplieth for one work, one church, one God. We have to have that soft tissue. What is that soft tissue? Brethren might not agree on everything. Sisters might not agree on everything. But with grace, we can work together. And this is what what we lose when we take a directive rather than a reflective attitude. And that is the attitude of the questioning. This lawyer says, what shall I do? Jesus says, be a neighbor. Stop worrying about what you shall do. In the moment, the Samaritan responds to the needs of that one on the side of the road. Did he not? He didn't run back and pray about it. He didn't run back and make sure he had authority to act on this one broken down on the side of the road. In that moment, he had compassion on another. And search your heart and your life experience in the moments in which you have had compassion on another. Have you not seen them won over for Christ? Have you not seen one who has received the gospel? When you have actually modeled Christ, doctrine's important. It helps us understand the word of God. It helps us understand the mind of God. But without grace, without love, and without forgiveness, 
We are but certain lawyers standing and tempting God. Did you not say you'd only save the elect? And so on and so on. It takes truth and gives it a bitter taste. Isn't that the devil's intent? Turning the grace of God unto lasciviousness, as Jude says. Now listen to this in closing. This is just an interesting thing to think on. And Lord willing, when we get to this point in the Lord's ministry in this study, we'll, we'll have some more clarity. But in, in our text, in Luke 10, verses 26 through 28, we read, He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And the lawyer says, important, you might write this in the margins, the lawyer says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Consider the answer the Lord offered up to, uh, to the lawyer later. This hasn't happened yet. In Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, and it is not the same event. Matthew 22, verses 33 through 3 through 4. Ugh. Matthew 22, verses 34 through verse 40. And it reads as follows. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him, and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Word for word, mind you, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I wonder when Jesus told the lawyer in Luke 10 to go and do thou likewise, just how far he got. Could this have been the same lawyer that he spoke to that day? I don't know that. I don't know that it is. But it's not unlike our Lord to regurgitate some words back at some folks that have a significant meaning on a very base level.